there was uh, it was August 1998 when, as you remember, the uh, Russian default set off a chain reaction of, of problems and long-term capital management and all these things. And so when I was trading equity index options here in the US uh, at that time, I had been short some options at the time, which then went violently against me in the short run. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Sam Burns. Sam, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. <laughs> How'd you like my radio voice there, huh? Outstanding. Yeah, no, you got it down. <laughs> it's a little early in the morning, so you can be froggy in the morning, see? So let me introduce you to the audience. Sam is Chief Investment Strategist at Mill Street Research, an independent investment research firm based near Boston, Massachusetts. For 25 years now, he has focused on global asset allocation and quantitative stock selection, primarily for institutional investors. After spending many years doing research at firms like Oppenheimer, State Street, Brown's Brothers, Harriman, and Ned Davis Research, Sam founded Mill Street in 2016 to be able to bring all of his best work together and offer it to clients without any constraints or conflicts. Sam, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. <laughs> well, yeah, it's... Uh... It's been a long road to get here. And I like to think that, you know, I can take all the best of the things that I've learned and seen and done over the last 25 years, the different firms that you mentioned, and put them all together in one sort of, you know, one place and, and offer them to people without any kind of constraints. And a lot of what I do and my sort of mindset is to have a structured process, to have an approach that you use consistently over time. And I think, you know, a lot of the professional money managers that I talk to, you know, while they kind of sound good on paper, when you actually talk to them, you find out they don't really have that. And so that, you know, my first advice to kind of anyone, whether an individual investor or an institution is to, you know, have a plan, have a program, have some way to approach things without looking at the headlines today. Don't build it mm -hmm. around what you see in the newspaper, have, have a structured approach of some kind and then not be mine, but it has to be some kind of plan and use that to keep yourself out of trouble. And I think that's what I can try to do is to help people you know, deliver tools and, and information that they can use to kind of stay out of the ditch. Mm. And what are the typical type of people that would, you know, benefit from your work and what you're doing? Yeah. So most of the clients that I work with are institutional investors of some kind, which can mean very small, independent uh, investment advisors, family offices, things like that, all the way up to big, you know, mutual funds and banks and hedge funds and things like that. So uh, anyone who manages other people's money in any form could potentially benefit. And the people who maybe in particular don't have their own internal research staff and you know a lot of you know, time and money to spend building models and indicators and all kinds of things that I've uh, spent all these years doing. And that essentially, you know, if they can come to a place like Mill Street and get it all, you know, built already done and delivered to them and somebody who knows how it all works and can explain all the details and pitfalls, that could potentially be, you know, be valuable. And I'm going to have links to all 
all of your resources in the show notes. And I know you've got some interesting stuff, but one of the questions I want to talk about is before we turn on the microphone, we were talking about the idea of two things. What we were talking about is emerging markets. And we were also talking about, about commodities. And maybe just because I'm in emerging markets and many of the listeners are either in emerging markets or they're investing in emerging markets, you know, emerging markets have been tough for a long time. It's been King Dollar and King Tech in America leading the way. And I'm just curious, when do you think that turns or does it? Or is it has it turned already? What is your signals that you're seeing? Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's been a sort of a, a long time since emerging markets have really sustainably outperformed the developed markets, particularly the U.S. And, you know, it's funny, I had a client ask me about that a little while ago, and I went back and looked at the earnings, the level of, you know, earnings over time over the last 10 years using the MSCI Emerging Markets Index versus the Developed Markets Index. And emerging market index level earnings, kind of the aggregate level of earnings right now are about 15 to 20% less than they were 10 years ago. Whereas the developed market earnings are about 50 or 60% from where they were 10 years ago in aggregate, just using the basic, you know, standard like benchmark indexes. So there's been a fundamental reason why emerging markets have certainly in dollar terms, at least mm. lagged over the last 10 years, because the earnings have not grown in emerging markets, you know, in aggregate overall. Now, some countries they have, some stocks they have, certainly, but it's been, you know, it hasn't been simply just, oh, people don't like them or they've, you know, it's, it's been some sort of a sentiment thing. There has been a fundamental reason for it. Yep. And so what I look for is when is that earnings trend going to really favor emerging markets over developed markets or the U.S.? And the U.S. has really led the way in terms of earnings growth for a long time. And I think that's still the case. You know, when I look for, for yep. the most part right now, it's still the U.S. kind of at the top of the list. And then China in particular has been relatively weak. And so there's been some other mar emerging markets that have done you know, relatively better, but it's been a tough you know period for emerging markets, both from a kind of a sentiment standpoint, but also from a fundamental standpoint. I wonder if if you did, uh, I don't know what it would be the right index to look at, let's say Russell 2000, maybe that mm -hmm. excludes, you know, and you could just do, okay, X tech. I wonder, you know, if you strip that out, if we would see that the differential between emerging markets and the West or let's say developed markets ends up not being nearly as much as it appears. It was just that those magnificent seven really, really drove America. What is your thought on that? Oh, you're right. Yeah. No, the, the big mega cap US stocks, particularly the tech related stocks, have really been a, a big driver for pushing earnings up in the US in aggregate. Now, I think there's probably still some net benefit. Now, the Russell 2000, you have small caps have definitely lagged in terms of earnings growth for quite a while as well. And that's why, you know, large caps have generally been outperforming small caps in the US. And, you know, the relative earnings growth has definitely been in the US large caps. Now, even if you took out some of the big cap tech stocks, I think earnings have still been better overall. And the tendency for analysts to want to raise their forecast, kind of the, the positive news has still been better in across. I also look a lot at equal weighted indexes. So mm -hmm. taking out that mega cap bias within US stocks or globally, and you still see a relative you know, strength in earnings estimates for U.S. stocks relative to emerging markets or even other developed market stocks. Yeah. So there is really an underlying fundamental benefit to earnings in the U.S. and the economic growth in the U.S. relative to other, other markets. But it's been ex especially pronounced for the, for the big mega caps. 
I just, you know, being on the sell side all of my career, a lot like, you know, yourself understanding how that works. I just wrote down something that very quickly that you were saying, I was thinking, uh, maybe to some extent, emerging markets looks like emerging US, meaning mid cap, small cap US, that maybe there's some similarities. That's a helpful discussion. One last question on that is, do you have any feeling or any observation from your information and your data and your model, how or when or if that's ever going to turn? I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's hard to say. And I kind of try to look at it, you know, day to day, month to month and, and, and wait for the indicators to turn before rather than trying to predict them. Mm. But my guess is that, you know, China has been such a big influence on emerging markets in general, not only its weight in the indexes, but its influence on all the other Asian markets and everything else. And the fact that I think it's, you know, basically running into kind of the limits of, of its own of its growth pattern over the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. It's going to see a much slower growth, you know, going forward. We're already seeing that. So I think there'll be in areas, particularly maybe, you know, like India, some of the other big emerging markets may be able to take over kind of the growth mantle there. But I think that some of the structural issues that a lot of them face are still there and in some cases getting worse mm. in terms of, you know, policies and you know, leadership and things like that. So, you know, to me, it's going to take a shift toward potentially a more shareholder friendly environment in general for a lot of these markets to really be able to kind of compete with certainly the US, but even mm. developed markets in general. So unless there's something specific that a particular emerging market has, either a technology or a commodity or something like that that, would, that drives it, I think they're going to struggle, particularly if the big driver of China isn't there to kind of you know carry them everything else along to some degree. Yeah, and I guess that's a good reason why we should keep in touch and watch what you're saying in your weekly stuff, because as you say, your, your model is not trying to forecast the next year or two or three. It's trying to detect, you know, movements that are hopefully are trends starting. You mentioned something else to me before we turn on the mic, which I'd love to talk about just for a bit before we get into the key question of this podcast. And that is commodities. I mean, come on, everybody's got to be overweight commodities. We've got, you know, the, the ESG movement is trying to crush capital flows into oil companies. So they haven't been investing. We've got, you know, potential wars going on. We got Russia and Saudi Arabia really controlling supply, you know, much more carefully. We've got America drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve, and we just got all of these different factors. So everybody must be considering being overweight, a commodity super cycle or a commodity cycle What's your take? Yeah, you're right. I've you know seen all those news stories and and talked to a lot of people and and really you know to me you know I kind of see it almost the other way around in terms of well first like we were just saying China has been the big driver of commodity demand for twenty or thirty years now and I think it's not going to be it isn't right now and it's not going to be again to the same degree that it was I don't think they're going to be the big source of global demand for you know, whether it's, you know, iron, steel and cement or oil or anything else the way it used to be. And I think that, you know, the U.S. is now a major oil producer and is back to producing all time record amounts of, of crude oil. Obviously, the U.S. is a big natural gas producer as well. And the fact that liquefied natural gas is now being traded more actively globally and there's no cartel for natural gas means that that side of things is much less likely to see big spikes in price that are sustainable. And even the fact that oil has had multiple cuts of supply by OPEC and Russia and what's going on in the Middle East now, you basically had every you know attempt to kind of 
forced the price up and it's really not gone up that much mm. that, you know, you had a few times over the past, over the summer, where there would be an OPEC supply cut, oil would go up for a day or two and then go back down again. And it, it did that several times. And finally they cut enough to get the price up some, and now it's already back down again. And even the war in, you know, in Israel that, that might bring in our, Iran and other places still can't really get oil prices going much. Mm. So to me, it tells me that the underlying supply demand is is pretty sort of flat to down, meaning there's plenty of supply around, plenty of oil there. Mm. It's just a matter of whether people are you know politically willing to pull it out of the ground and sell it or or not. And so your bull thesis really has to be that there'll be even more constraints on supply from you know, OPEC or, or wars or things like that. But the actual underlying supply demand is still in favor of you know flat to lower prices in, in my view. And you know, say natural gas is the same. And if you look at all the commodities except for oil, you know, Bloomberg has an index and other places have an index of all commodities ex petroleum. Hmm. And if you look at that, it's making I think you know eighteen month lows right now. So all the metals, a lot of the agricultural commodities, mm-hmm. other things, they're not going up at all. And so that tells me it's not a broad-based commodity move. It's really just kind of oil getting occasionally, you know, pushed up by, you know, political events or, you know, things like that. And that's not a sustainable kind of model, I think. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a fair mm-hmm. amount of oil floating around. Okay. Interesting. There's no cartel in natural gas. Wasn't there a, a major political group that cut off the gas supply to all of Europe and then started supplying. No, no, it wasn't. I think there was another group that cut the gas supply from Russia to Europe and then substituted their gas for that. Wasn't oh, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, was, a, hundred, there yeah. was a cartel, something I can't remember, like the U U.S. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course, and the so, U.S. Yes. didn't do it, and we have to officially announce here the U.S. didn't do it. It was someone else. It was surely someone else. Although Biden admitted that, you know, hey, if you if you open that Nord Stream, it isn't going to continue. But I'm just right, I'm just right. I'm teasing a little bit. But one yeah. of the questions too is. Are all of these other commodities down because people are anticipating a recession? Is that the reason or is it supply, do you think? Or what, what is your thinking on that? I think part of it is that you know global economic growth has slowed down. Mm. And so the, the demand side globally has is certainly you know been weakening. And the US has managed to hold up much better than most other economies, but you know, Europe's slowing down, China's very much slowing down. And again, they're a big, big source of the demand for a lot of those commodities. But there is, yeah, there's enough supply, generally speaking, mm. for a lot of them. And so if there's not a big source of new demand coming along for a lot of these, you know, standard commodities, and the demand is kind of, you know, again, kind of flattish to down, there's not a big impetus to push them up. And so, particularly with monetary policy tightening in a lot of places. That also puts downward pressure on a lot of them. And so I think that there's you're gonna to have to wait for some kind of you know renewed cycle to the upside in terms of you know stimulus from government spending or something to get that really moving the other direction again. Mm. And I think that'll be quite a while down the road. All right. Well, great. It's it's interesting to hear your ideas. And I know for the listeners and the viewers out there, everybody's debating, you know, what's gonna happen. And we've got to look at lots of different sides of the argument. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be. Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure, yeah, I was trying to think about that and obviously there's many possible things, but one of them that really kind of made an early impression on me was as many years ago when I was in, in business school actually and you know, kind of learned the lesson of trading options. 
So for you know those who are familiar with, with trading options and, and other derivatives and things, <laughs> there's a lot more to it than simply directional views. And so I've actually been trading options for a little while before that, but mostly from the long side, meaning buying puts and calls, which at least the very least has a, a limited risk aspect to it. You can only lose what you put in. But I, at some point in there, I thought I would give it a try to do the short you know, sell options. And there was, uh, it was August 1998 when, as you remember, the uh, Russian default set off a chain reaction of problems and long-term capital management and all these things. And so when I was trading equity index options here in the US uh, at that time, I had been short some options at the time, which then went violently against me in the short run. And so I remember, you know, thinking about it that, I, you know, I didn't really have a good plan for what if something like this happened. Like I knew obviously that I could lose money and how options worked in principle, but I did not have a, a pre-established plan for what if some geopolitical event happens and the market suddenly just falls out of bed. And so I you know, lost a whole lot of money and got margin calls and things like that. And so since then, I've really not gone back to trying to, to short <laughs> options too much mm. and you know, be much more careful with, with things like that, where there's an open-ended loss kind of aspect to it. But it also you know, reminded me that, that A, every, I mean, any option trade is, is a bet on volatility somehow, even if you don't think about it mm. and that you know you, you really just need to understand what you're really betting on and that I didn't probably have a good view of exactly kind of what you know the all the different scenarios that might play out were and so had to kind of re you know regroup after that and so you know luckily I could you know kind of recover from that but it was you know a reminder that whatever technicals or indicators or whatever you might have you know are never foolproof and you have to assume that there's you know some sort of that uh, black swan risk that might come along and and certainly did at that point. And, it, and of course, if I look back at it, if I'd been able to hold on for two more months, you know, the Fed came to the rescue a month or two later and the market went right back up again. And so if I'd been able to had more capital and been better prepared, I could have probably ridden it out. Mm. But in this case, uh, I didn't mm. didn't have the proper preparation. And that was a <clears throat> painful you, early, uh, early lesson there. So let's try to summarize. That's a great story. And it definitely has a lot of lessons in it. What would you say is lesson one, two, three, most important? Uh, I think lesson one is definitely know what you're betting on. Mm -hmm. Take a step back and say, okay, well, I think, you know, that the drivers of this investment, whatever it is, are, you know, the economy, interest rates, you know, market sentiment, whatever it might be, but make sure you really understand what the driver of the underlying investment is. Mm -hmm. And in the case of something like options or any kind of derivatives, you have to make sure you know that you're not just betting on the stock market going up or down, but that up or down in a certain way, that the volatility you know, in the options market has to you know, go up or down to make you win, or has to happen within a certain amount of time. Options, of course, are time limited. And so all those things go into the, your decision-making. And so if you're used to just taking directional bets on the market or in stocks, and then switch to something like derivatives, where there's the directional bet and this sort of, you know, other stuff, volatility bets and, and time, you know, and time decay and all those things, you really got to understand what you're doing first. And then like I say, have a plan. What could go wrong and what are you going to do about it before you look at the headline to see what's happening? And I think that's critical for any mm. investment plan of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. And then make sure that you're capitalized well enough to handle, to ride through ups and downs and drawdowns. The drawdowns look, look easy on paper, but in the real life, you know, it can be very painful. Yeah, it's it's interesting. As one of my takeaways is the, you know, ultimately you got to know what you're betting on. As you were saying, you know, you're betting on volatility. You're also betting against time. But I also would say know what's the 
actual thing that you're betting on. You know, you may think that you're betting on such and such going up or down, but you're actually betting on, let's say, volatility rising. And so sometimes when we're a beginner, we're actually exposing ourselves. A great example is like when I started as an analyst, I thought here I was recommending Bangkok Bank here in Bangkok to a fund manager in Boston as an example. And what I missed about that was fund flows and how significant fund flows were in and out of emerging markets. And therefore, I couldn't put that piece together. So I I was betting, and sometimes my bet would be really right. And I thought that I was right because the stock was cheap, but really it went up because of something other than what I thought. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you've continued to learn, let's think about a beginner or somebody getting into that space, what's one action that you'd recommend they take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, and you're right. There often are kind of hidden drivers of an investment that it's it's not what you think it is. It's, you know, that maybe it's, it's a currency movement that's really driving it or a commodity movement, and you're attributing it to the stock or your, your fundamental analysis. And it's, or it's, you know, the Fed, the interest rate policy that suddenly shifts and goes in your direction. And there's things that are not relevant that people think are the money supply or the bank, the Fed's balance sheet things. A lot gets attributed to those, but that's not really what's what's driving things. So I think, yeah, making a point to really think through what's behind it and you know what are the other things moving at the same time that might explain the movement of the asset that you're interested in. So that there's a lot of things that where there's a hidden macro driver or uh, you know a currency or a commodity or something else, a policy movement that's driving things that you're not focused on. And that's that's really the reason, but you didn't know it. And so when it goes away, you know, all of a sudden your investment goes the wrong direction. Mm. So I think that's really important to kind of really focus on. That's where focusing on price movements and shorter term movements, sometimes you're giving some of that responsibility to the market. The market's starting to move and the observations of what's happening that could be different from what your thesis is, is very helpful. Let me ask you, what's a resource, either of yours or any other resource that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? Yeah, no, there's certainly things that you can pick up, you know, from like the Twitter and LinkedIn accounts that I that I follow for, for mm. Wall Street Research, where I'll post, you know, examples of the work I do and kind of some of the conclusions that I come to, and particularly things where I think, you know, maybe the market or other people that have maybe, you know, taken a different view, you know, why I'm taking the particular view that I am. But otherwise, you know, I think it's important to try to listen to or read people who are practitioners, people who are really involved in markets day to day, rather than say, you know, nothing against journalists, they do a, they do a great job and it's a difficult job, but a lot of them are writing for a different reason than to make you a better investor. So that whatever's in the newspaper or a lot of headlines and things are not written for you as the investor to do well with or to get information ahead of other people. So is that why journalists hate, is that why journalists hate Twitter? <laughs> well, it's certainly competition for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good Yeah, good, yeah. And that's that's the thing. Point. You you can learn things from Twitter, but you have to be very, very careful with who you listen to. Mm. So yeah. So I would say uh, be careful about what the source of your information is in terms yeah. of whether it's somebody you think is a trustworthy source that has experience, direct experience in, in what you're talking about. And I'll have links to your Twitter and LinkedIn in the show notes. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal, I would say, is to try and stay on the right side of the you know the macro picture. I think that's been the hard part the last couple of years mm. with COVID and everything else. The macro picture is so difficult and so complicated and so unlike all the past cycles. 
and that relying too much on you know history and what normally happens in an economic cycle has not been helpful this cycle. Mm. And so if I can get through the next year and not make any major macro mistakes by reading too much into history and, and not looking at what's happening now that's different, then I will have had a big accomplishment. Yeah. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Sam, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I have a plan. Beautiful. I don't think we can end it any better than that. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.